So Ian, this week we've got Luke Masters. For those that don't know, um, Luke is a man that, that's done everything through from agency, through to planning, through to building. We've always been behind the national housing target and we're now going back to registration levels of 2012. So we will deliver hugely less new property than we need. That's the reason why if you try and reserve a new home now, you're looking at move in 2023. In some cases, move in 2024. Where are these new houses actually going to come from? How are we going to ease demand, which obviously everybody perceives as, oh, the prices are bonkers. Ultimately, the prices, in my opinion, will remain bonkers and if anything, potentially get worse. In my opinion, there's no better person to get on to talk about the different parts of the industry that he's come across, mm. the pros, the cons, and, and where he sees things going. But what are you looking forward to? Yeah, I think the, the conversation we're going to have with Luke today on this episode is going to be different to any of the other podcasts we've done so far. Luke's got a real knowledgeable insight into, like you say, all different property facets. And for me, it, now that he's involved in surveying, he's been involved in development, and he's got the agency background, he understands the foundations of property. I'm quite looking forward to getting into a multiple of just hearing different questions thrown at him because I know he'll have the answers for them and also his story as well. But I think for me, he's dealt with some really big players in the property game with a lot of money, we're talking billions of pounds. And I think it'd be nice to hear the dynamic of how they look at investing in comparison to the standard buy to let investor that's looking to get a pension plan for example so um different conversations today that i'm looking forward to getting stuck into with me a lot to talk about but like yeah. you said it's um it'd be interesting to hear from his side like i said from, from all different angles so the man that's seen it all heard it all <laughs> been there done that so it'd be nice to, to get an overall and really see what he how he sees the um future of property going what happens next basically which we ask on every podcast but mm. i'd be interested to know his views on that so yeah, let's get him on he'll be detailed i'm sure so yeah let's bring on luke so luke thanks for joining us on the landlord page podcast how are you very good thank you how are you both of you very good yeah business is good the podcast is going well people are listening that's always a win so yeah all positive stuff how are you tristan I'm an good from my side as well yeah I'm- I thought you were speaking on, both, on behalf of both of us, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> could have been, could have been. So on the intro, we obviously mentioned that you wear a lot of different hats in property or have done over the years, which is why we wanted to get you on as a guest to actually just start off by, I guess, just hearing your story, Luke, in terms of how you got into property at an early age and then how that's evolved to where you are today and kick off with a little bit about you. Fine. Okay. Well, we, there's a few, there's a few junctions and a few changes along the way. Um, to be honest with you, starting, I'd say it probably came down to the fact that I wasn't fantastically uh, motivated during education. Mm-hmm. And I decided I didn't want to go to university and I wanted to get a job. And I looked at the property industry and you could see that there was young people that were successful. They were making their way. You could see relatively young people driving quite nice cars, buying houses. And as a 17, 18 year old, obviously that piques your interest. You're young and ambitious and you think, okay, right. That's, that's something that certainly I'd be interested in. I've always been interested in property and construction anyway. So that's probably the, the earliest starting point, to be honest with you. Uh, So 
18, 19, I think, after a brief stint in London, came back to where I grew up, which is not too far from here around Reading, um, and decided to get into property properly, take a take a role in a corporate company and, and see how it went. So I started at, at a corporate and I was there for six years working in different departments from sort of support to sales to mortgage services. Um, and to be honest with you, I just decided that I wanted a different challenge where I probably had something that was more mentally tasking and more exciting. Mm-hmm. So I left there after, yes, about six and a half years, went and with a investor in the background, two of us from the, the corporate company went and started uh, an independent agency in Reading, um, which was great fun. I learned an awful lot about business in general as well as the property market because I was so much closer to everyone, be that landlord, vendor, buyer, all of your service providers that you need to rely on and understanding what those service providers look like. So whether that's solicitor, mortgage broker, your your surveyors, all of those, seeing how it really truly works as, a, as an entire transaction and how all of those touch points and people within the transaction can directly affect the success of not just that one transaction, but all of your business, yeah. essentially. And having There's that... a lot of people involved in a single transaction. Yeah, having that sort of power team, because ultimately, some, I mean, something that I was always told from a really young age is, essentially, you are as good as your weakest person. So if you've got a transaction where you have six people touching that client at various different points, be it from initial inquiry, sale, solicitor mortgage broker, mortgage company, the point at which somebody starts to let them down is the point where it affects everybody because it becomes more stressful, more work, more complicated. Um, so I think doing that, I learned, I learned an awful lot. Um, and essentially from there, I was dealing with, um, I was dealing with a family fund, venture capitalists that were based out of Asia and we were doing quite a lot of work for them. And they wanted to move into the UK market. And from that independent agency, I then left and went and worked for the family fund. So then I started to change from being more agency side to being more construction developer asset based. Um, So I became more sort of acquisition and asset manager as opposed to agency. So that again was very different. We did a number of schemes in and around Berkshire, um, delivered them well, made made good money. Um, was there for three or four years. What sort of things were they asking you to to find for them? Or were they just taking your advice in terms of we've got X amount of money and we would love to invest it in property, and then it was as vague as that, or we want to invest it in this type of property? It was. To be honest with you, it was it was largely led by me, and I think that was probably taken from the fact that we'd done a number of transactions together previously that I had essentially advised them on. So it was led by me, but there was there was obviously market changes. So originally they were buying 
let assets. So they were buying some office lets. They were buying HMOs. And eventually they, they got to the point where they were looking at it saying, we are putting money into the market, but obviously we're looking at a long-term return, a yield in the interim, but we're already paying for a fully let asset. So are we really getting that much initially or are we looking at a 20, 30 year play here to, to mm-hmm. make any money? So essentially they looked at it and said, if we're creating these assets, that's where the money is, buying them at the end, you can obviously make money by capital appreciation or rent increases, but the lump sum money is at the start. Yeah. After that, you're looking at obviously taking um, taking income over an extended period of time. So we essentially looked at that, changed, diversified, and then started buying assets to repurpose or land sites to, to build out the ground. Um, and to be honest with you, the market was market was good at the time. Um, we bought, built, and delivered everything in the run up to to COVID. Um, so we'd done one, two. We'd done five schemes by the time we got to COVID. Managed to get out of the last scheme we had, which actually ended up just being a planning gain. Um, which there was a number of different reasons for it, but essentially. The market did look a little bit funny. There was obviously people making noises out of Asia. They're based in Asia and everybody in Asia was starting to get a bit concerned by yeah. August, September of the previous year. Um, so by October, we took the planning gain and exited that, which I was pleased about because we would have been starting construction in January. And that would have been closed very quickly. Yeah, like a month before yeah, the first have, lockdown, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, it would have been it would have been kiboshed relatively quickly, and that would have been that would have been problematic because ultimately you're paying finance costs and your capital's tied up. So it was it was fortunate in a sense, but from that point, they ran a number of different companies. We had IT based companies in Asia and construction-based companies here. So once we had lockdown, obviously there wasn't essentially really much for me to do. And I felt like after five or six months, I was essentially stealing a living. I mean, it, it, I, I put a lot in in the previous three or four years and nobody had any issue with it, but it became a little bit mundane, a little bit boring, waking yeah. up for six months going, I'm... <laughs> I'm getting paid, but I'm just not doing anything. I'm not achieving anything. I'm just living, existing. Some people did it for two years and they're struggling to come out of it. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> but it's I just I just don't have I just don't have the ability to not be busy. I, I like as sad as it sounds, I like working, I like achieving things. So I got very itchy and by six months I said I've been working with you guys in a capacity helping out an IT business in Asia. Again, that was largely sort of service-led, retail-based. We all know that retail wasn't particularly existent at that moment in time, yeah. no matter where it was in the world. So at that point, I said, look, 
we get on very well. Love you all, but I need to do something, do something different. Um, so at that point, I moved to the company I'm at now, Students Hearn, and it's a full suite building consultancy. So I was looking at it from the point of view of one is something I understand. Obviously, I've been in the property construction industry. I've sat agent side. I've sat construction asset manager side. So really every type of clientele that the company would ever deal with, I have been. Yeah. So from my perspective, from knowledge and experience based, it was kind of the perfect role. Um, and the co well, the co-founder and now MD I'd known since I was 16, Alex, very, very driven guy always has been the sort of person where you you'd always back them to be successful and me and him have got very similar ideologies very similar work ethic very similar standards of service level and it, it one of those things it just happened at the right time and the opportunity was right for me it was right it was the right time for him and um yeah it, here we are 18 months later yeah. and I haven't been fired so I'm obviously doing something right congrats on that <laughs> it's great to hear because that's why I was keen to get you on because actually as you listen to that and I'm sure you'd agree Tristan it sounds like the CV of a 70 year old <laughs> because of the amount of things that you've done and that that flow that you've gone through from kind of agency to owning the business to asset management into construction and then obviously where you are now Some... well, we've, we've obviously missed out the fact that on, on the mornings, weekends, and other times, I do a little bit of property development, as you are aware. Yeah, but... I was going to get stuck into that, actually, as well. So... <laughs> I completely forgot that. So, yeah, I do do that. Yeah, so you've done done property developments and a bit of property development, and bought, sold, purchased, rented, you know, yeah. being a tenant, let to a tenant, and all different four angles, really, of um, or five angles, if you look at it that way, of of being involved in property. What would you say when you were doing, when you first started dealing with um, the investors in Asia, what was the the kind of big learning takeaways from that? What were the quick lessons that you learned from someone that's got that amount of financial fire, fire power? What kind, what kind of sort of questions and conversations were they having with you that you were picking up a lot of learnings from? They, they, they look at returns and they look at investments in a way that I'd heard about, I'd come across, but it is a little bit different to the way that a traditional investor or asset owner in the UK would, would look at things. They're always looking at return on cash annualised. They're not really too fussed about the overall return if they're making an investment or they're doing a development they also don't particularly like being in control they often like to back successful people mm -hmm. or successful businesses and charge reasonably high interest rates on money but that is their preferred route even into asset classes a lot of them will do guaranteed purchases, for example. They'll buy, they'll, they'll buy a development site, they'll 
JV it with a successful UK developer with a guaranteed exit price. They just don't want to deal with the hassle, which considering a lot of them have UK based teams and have the ability to buy some very, very good people. Mm -hmm. I just found it strange that they just did not want the liability. They just didn't want the overhead. And we're talking, we're talking about companies that have got billions of dollars worth of turnover and they just, they just don't want to take the hassle. They want to take, they're happy to take less money for an easier route. Yeah. And they, that's what I was about to say. It's kind of that that 80, 20 rule in business is always there. And sometimes an investor wants the, wants to push the full hundred percent, but actually the last 20 can take 80% of the time. And it sounds like they've clocked the analogy or the the financial planning around, well, let's just take that 80 and get in, get out and go again, rather than trying to squeeze that extra bit of margin that just takes all of our time. And by empowering someone else to do it, that has got the skill and got the CV and got the experience to do it, and they don't have to put their own time and efforts into it as well. So it's a clever way of looking at it. I guess. Oh, 100%. I mean, they'll have... And I, I, I still speak to people that act for them. Um, and I, I still speak to the the funds and families now. And they'll traditionally have one person employed in the UK. And they might be purchasing two, three hundred million dollars worth of assets a year. Or investing in two, three hundred million pounds worth of assets a year yeah backing people for that level of level of cash they have one employee yeah. one and you think yeah you think to be honest with you that's an unbelievable business model because you have zero risk yeah your yeah. your overheads are almost nothing mm-hmm. in comparison to what you're receiving as income and what you're what you're putting out into the market um but you did see a flurry of money from asia into the UK during COVID and lockdown. There was an awful lot of aggressive so they were, they investment. They were firing in still. There was a yeah. lot of aggressive investment into the UK market. Um, so the reason why? I think, to be honest with you, I mean, we all know that London um, is a globally renowned city. It's also everybody globally has an interest or a play in London partially because London's a place where you can get away with more than you can in some international large cities. To be honest with you, the regulations are not as tight and financial checks historically haven't been as tight. So I think it's a it's a trend thing. I think it's a bit like when markets go a bit funny and everybody rushes to gold. I think it's a bit like that in the property industry international property investors will rush to three or four internationally renowned cities or their suburbs and put the money. So they'll look at London, Greater London and the home counties. That's where their money's going. They're not interested in putting it anywhere else. Mm -hmm. They don't know about anywhere else from a technical perspective, Mm -hmm. but they will push money into London and the home counties. And the other thing they will always do is a lot of them are a lot of their children are internationally educated a lot of them have been internationally educated so a lot of them have come to universities in london 
you'll also see a lot of international investors investing in places like Bristol because they visited there. Their children have been to university there. They've been there an awful lot. They like the area. They like yeah. the market. So you will see that sort of Russell Group University international investment as well. And that's purely led by the education of either the individual themselves or their siblings or their children. And that's how they find out about these places because ultimately somebody of that stature of wealth is very unlikely to request or do their own investigation or due diligence into Clifton in Bristol. They might it's, have a contact left there, you know, family member or a friend of a, yeah. a close family member and, and they've got that that marshal there, if you like, left, yeah. left with the captain's hat on and such. Yeah, I yeah. do recall a massive increase in 2015, roughly, when uh, Crossrail was obviously at its early stages and there's a massive boom in the market, a lot of uh, international investment then because of the, 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 the mainline station that was going to be going through. And now, now it's all of a sudden, finally... We're Fine, choo, yeah. choo chewing down Last the track. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just about. Yeah, it's actually a thing. After six months of testing where you could see Crossrail going on and thinking, why is there one person on the train? Oh, wait, <laughs> yeah. they're testing it for half a year. <laughs> yeah, it still works. It's doing its thing. <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting that they were aggressively investing over that period of time because confidence in the first, let's say the first couple of months at lockdown, obviously the market was shut off altogether until sort of the second half of the year. But one thing that will have happened that we know as of today is the average property in the UK has probably gone up 25% since then. Substantially. So they've yeah. done well out of that oh, aggressive investment. Of course they have. And a lot of them have bought, a lot of them have bought distressed assets. They, they're not, they're not uneducated people. They understand economics on a granular level. They've seen it all before. And they'll look at things like, and a, a classic has been over the last sort of six, 12 months, it's probably pretty much died now because the market's come back. But a lot of them were buying university let assets, big blocks of co living, student living. Mm -hmm. There was no students. Everybody had gone back home. Everybody was saying, we're not paying rent. Yeah. You're in lockdown. University's closed. You're either taking your educational classes from your room but you can't really leave or do anything yeah or you can go back to your parents house where you've got multiple different rooms or a friend or whatever mm. but essentially we all know how how lockdown went and people wanted more space and the last thing people would want it to be is locked in a university student room mm. it's not a particularly appealing place to be um so those assets obviously took a took an awfully large hit on rentals for the next year, so reservations for the, the following um, educational year, and a big hit on the actual just passing rent from the students that were there because a lot of the companies were trying to do the right thing by reducing rents and just essentially trying to act like corporate businesses and not sharks. So yeah. they were doing the right thing. Mm. But a lot of them obviously got into a position where they couldn't really afford to do it yeah. any further. They were struggling. And a lot of these assets were sold as distressed assets 
20% below what was the historic market value where people just said, oh, we need a bit of a cash injection into our business. And the advisors of a lot of international funds said, right, let's be realistic about this. Are the Russell Group universities going to have a 50 to 60% occupancy rate forever? Yeah, obviously not. <laughs> quite, quite evidently, that would be a silly thing to suggest. So I, I, had, a, I had a very frank discussion with, with somebody who said to me, what we need to do is buy the property, clean it, look after the tenants, and within three years, that 20% that we saved will be back. And arguably, it's already back. Yeah, yeah. Because universities are fully occupational. They're up to 100%. International students are back. Yeah. So COVID's not even a thing. COVID's not. So, I mean, it's these people are incredibly astute and the, the financial plays they make are um are well informed but i think the saying goes money makes money doesn't it well it's, it's an interesting take on it because we talk on this podcast all the time about the safe investment is the free bed family home you know if you've got half a million pounds to spend and you want to buy a buy to let then you buy a family home it's going to grow in equity significantly over the next decade it's always going to be let you're typically going to have less void periods and the rental yield might not be as high as a HMO, but it's just plug and play, finance and forget, and you're just really happy with it. When you're talking billions and you know hundreds of millions, they're looking at it from, I don't want the, the micro margins, they're looking at it as opportunities, and it's quite an interesting take on it. Going back to your property developing aspect of things, yeah. and a little bit on the company you are at the moment, how are you finding things have changed since covid construction-wise or regulations-wise for a building developer? It's difficult. Or not at all? It's, it's difficult. Um, I, it hasn't changed drastically in the sense of what is required is, largely speaking, exactly the same process is the same. But the hoops you need to jump through and the lead time for anything that you try and do is vastly exaggerated, whether that be a pre-application meeting for planning, mm -hmm. whether that be a planning application. I mean, every council in the UK has a publicly published timescale to make a decision on a planning application. Around here, I can't speak obviously for further afield, mm -hmm. but around here I would challenge you to find somebody who's had it either refused or accepted within that time period because I don't think I've spoken to a single person whether that be a homeowner doing an extension or a developer who hasn't had hello it's Mr X from the council we are requesting an extension to your planning decision uh, I mean ultimately I don't know what your response is supposed to be to that because if you say no, they still can't do it. Mm -hmm. So it's not really a request. It's yeah. this is what will be happening. So you've got planning for homeowners or developers, which is taking far longer. You're then trying to procure construction contracts in a market which 
the lead times are very long because there's an, ab an abundance of work currently. You've then got the, the issue of spiraling material costs related yeah, to supply, yeah, which is related to supply, inflation and everything else. Um, and then you've even got things like, and um, I mean, we're, we're coming to a couple of months, which I think are going to get a little bit irritating for people doing transactions, which is, I think most service providers, solicitors, surveyors, mortgage brokers, etc., they've largely speaking caught up with the backlog from COVID. Largely speaking, just about, they've, they've caught up and their service level is pretty much, and their lead-in time is pretty much back to where it used to be. Um, obviously, there's a number of factors that affect that. If the company's grown, they're probably fine. But if you had a backlog, you're probably just about through it now. But obviously, we've now got, everybody's about to go on holiday. Yeah. And people do need to even think about things as granular as that. Yeah. Of when do I need to start things? And what expectation or questions do I need to ask about how likely is this to happen in this time scale or how achievable do you think this is? Ultimately, if you're instructing a solicitor who's got four weeks holiday over the next eight weeks, you want to know exactly who's dealing with that work in the interim and what their capacity to complete that transaction in that time is. Yeah. Because you are, as we said much earlier in the conversation, you are reliant on a lot of other people doing their job for you as the seller or the purchaser to successfully either enter or exit that property. So you do need to understand what capacity and service level you're going to receive from each and every person along that transaction and make sure that you're dealing with people and businesses who are aligned in the way that they work, their ethos and their customer service. Because if somebody holds the transaction up by three or four weeks, there is nothing the other four people can do about it. And I think the world that we're in now is we're in an on-demand culture, aren't we? So, you know, people want everything now. Patience for results is, is just way shorter than what it was before. You know, you can't Amazon Prime a garage extension. It just doesn't happen. <laughs> but a garage extension now is like going to take you three times longer to get to completion and probably three times more expensive as well. Yeah. So it's almost like everything else has moved to this pace, but the, the property transactional part of it is is slow. And we all thought with, you know, on those touch points with solicitors and the legal transactions, we all thought that was just this huge bulk of pipeline because of the stamp duty holiday. Well, the stamp duty holiday has come and gone a long time ago and it's still so, the yeah. same speed. So it had nothing to do with that. It's just that's the, the UK legal process or the English legal process. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really fair point. And in terms of where you are now, the company you're at now, we were talking off camera about the fact that it's, it's residential, it's commercial, um, you know, a fair split. And there's a few different service channels that you offer your services to. What, what are the, the trends and what are the things that you're finding at volume at the moment people are requesting for? I'll be honest with you. It's, we, we've expanded and recruited heavily, but it, it's genuinely challenging to keep up with 
demand across the market. And it is, it's a real struggle. Mm-hmm. People, yes, people do want everything now, but across the, across the market and all of our competitors, the lead times are, I mean, our lead time, I think, is longer than I would like it to be, but it's still weeks shorter than other people's. And it's just the sheer volume of people that want everything done now. Mm. And obviously, the end goal is buy the property. Yeah. But there are so many people that want to buy a property that every single service provider is chasing their tail to provide a great level of service and turn it around as fast as physically possible for their clients. Yeah. But it it is a it is a challenge because residential is still reasonably bonkers. I think you Yeah, yeah, agree. bonkers is a word we use very frequently actually. Um bananas bonkers. It's still very, very hectic. And in terms of let's say a full structure on a chalet you know, chalet style bungalow, you need to know what that survey tells you before everything else starts happening. And if it takes six weeks for that to be booked in, reported on and to digest it, sometimes longer, the whole chain is almost dependent on that happening. But because of the way, the nature of the property game, everything's happening independently. And you might get that report and it's just not the property for you off off the back of it. It's not wasted money. It's money you've spent to secure a bigger amount of money so yeah. that you don't waste hundreds of thousands of pounds or millions. But everyone in the chain is then set back to square one again where you go on your search again. So it's this ongoing issue of, of time and it, it's the it's the first stage of the legal part for someone to check a property. Well, yeah, exactly. And it's it, it's that it's, it's trying to be as dynamic and helpful with, the service you provide as possible so i mean for us with residential we will we'll, we will do our absolute best to get out within a week of when we get instructed which as as far as i'm aware unless you can uh, confirm otherwise is relatively good um it's pretty spectacular i'd say <laughs> and, and then we've just started doing things to assist purchasers solicitors and agents where we will call the client either the same day or the day after give them the high level summary of anything that's even remotely important for them to be informed of Mm -hmm. and then send them an email summary which essentially bullet points anything that they need to be concerned about aware of or check with the agent or solicitor which then means you're not waiting those five ten in some cases for the the wider competitor market two three weeks yeah for the report to arrive with the information that the surveyor knew when he visited the property yeah but you haven't found out about for three weeks yeah because it wasn't in a report yeah it doesn't need to be in the report and that in reality from a communication point of view in the property market has always been a problem and something maybe blockchain but something has to change the way the internal service providers communicate but getting on to the quick fire round, which sometimes is quick and sometimes is not. Tristan, over to you for your uh, three magic questions. Thanks, Ian. So what happens next in the property market? 
Tristan, that is a interesting one. Um, what happens next? I would be confident and bold enough to say that looking at everything from the lowest registrations and well take 2012 since then we're currently running at the lowest level of registrations of new properties that are going to be constructed so registrations from house builders that is going to squeeze supply quite drastically the planning system is running at a longer lead time than ever which again will affect supply and ultimately construction is slowing down because the material lead times are stopping construction the planning systems stopping construction developers are starting to look at doing more off-plan build to order and they're hedging as well ultimately all that will happen is the market will in my personal opinion continue to increase because the supply will be squeezed the demand is going up the month on month Zoopla stats are more buyers registered than ever, more buyers registered than ever. It's an all time record every single month, but we're not delivering properties. We should have been delivering more properties every single year, drastically since 2012. We've always been behind the national housing target and we're now going back to registration levels of 2012. So we will deliver hugely less new property than we need. That's the reason why if you try and reserve a new home now, you're looking at move in 2023. In some cases, move in 2024. Where are these new houses actually going to come from? How are we going to ease demand, which obviously everybody perceives as, oh, the prices are bonkers. Ultimately, the prices, in my opinion, will remain bonkers and if anything, potentially get worse. Yes, you've got inflation, you've got cost of living, but these things affect everybody and everything will get slightly more expensive, yes. But with how constrained supply is going to be over the next couple of years of new properties that ultimately are the only thing which helps supply is a, is a new property being built. If they're not being built, the sheer lack of stock will continue to push prices up because for the level of stock that will be available, there will always be those people that, that can purchase them. And developers are, are looking at more build to, build to rent. And I think there'll be a big swing. And I think a lot more people will be moving into these build to rent schemes. And I don't think that's gonna stop at flats and high rise blocks of flats. I think that will be housing estates. I think you will have a build to rent housing estate that is owned by a developer. And ultimately, when you've got such a small supply, a lot of people are going to have to move into rented. Rents are going to go up. Developers are going to look at that from the point of view of the capital appreciation on the stock is huge. The rental prices they can command are going to be massive. And ultimately, that's probably where the market goes. And I think the market goes up 10% this year. I think maybe you see people getting a bit twitchy next year if things don't start to level themselves out. But in reality, how likely is that to happen? I mean, we've all seen what's happened over the last two, three years. And whenever the market looks like 
it's got any negative source coming into it, the government are looking at pushing stimulus. I mean, cost of living, we're already talking about tax cuts. We've been talking about cost of living for three or four months. We're now talking about tax cuts, extra stimulus, all the rest of it. As long as, as long as there's more demand than there is supply, and drastically more demand than there is supply, the market will continue to go up because that is sim as simple as it can possibly be. If, if 15 people want one house, it's going to sell for big money. And that's reality where we're going to be, I think. It's not even just the new build units, is it? If the new build units are being built and let, you know, on paper, okay, it shows that we've built the properties, but if they're being let and they're not servicing the, the demand for residential sales, then the prices of properties are going to continue, like you say, to go up. And, you know, you say 10% this year, I think comfortably agree with that because I think we're already at about five. And if we look at 10% this year, then we're seeing somewhere over 30% over the last three years since, you know, since COVID. Crazy, so unbelievable numbers, you know, who would have thought it? I mean, you look at, you go back historically and you say there have been instances where you've had what would be perceived tricky markets, finances for economies all over the place, and the money always ends up in assets. And you've seen, you've seen historically property prices jump 100% within 24 months, comfortably. It's not going to be that drastic. That would be beyond bonkers, but money will always find its way into something that's perceived to be safe. Assets are always perceived to be safe. Developers will continue to build if the cost of developing those properties is more than they would like it to be. They'll either stop building or they'll build and they'll rent them. Like Ian said, that squeezes supply even further because you could say, oh, we delivered 100,000 new units into the UK last year. Okay, but what percentage were released to the open market for, for sale? Up oh, 15%. Let's say it gets that drastic. Okay, well, across the entirety of the UK, <laughs> that's not, not a lot of houses. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So it brings me on to my next question then. If you wanted to invest in the perfect buy-to-let deal tomorrow, what does that look like to you? The perfect buy-to-let. Um, the perfect buy-to-let to me is, let me think, what would I, what would I push my money into tomorrow? I'll tell you what I push my money into tomorrow. I would push it into a family home. So somewhere between a two and four bedroom house. I'd push it into something which requires a little bit of work and improvement because I believe the market will continue going up. So if you can make some small improvements like new carpet flooring, repaint, maybe a new kitchen or a bathroom, I think you'll see that money back hand over fist through capital appreciation. And I think you need to really look at the area and the wider economy of where that property is and look at what positive and negative influences affect this property's value for sale or rental today and or in the future. 
So, I mean, historically, probably 10 years ago, Ian, we'd have called it the Waitrose effect. Mm -hmm. And if if there's planning permission in for uh, a retail unit, it's going to be taken over by Waitrose five minutes from your house. And you always knew that was a safe bet. Mm -hmm. Investors typically used to always buy buy around that area. Um, But I think think it's really getting to understand where are you buying? What is the employment level like? What's the desirability? What amenities have you got? Is that likely to change either positively or negatively? There's a big industrial park being built that is going to have a ton of offices and you've got an Amazon HQ moving in or you've got Lidl's um, support centre moving into it. Mm -hmm. There's going to be a huge level of employment that's going to come into your area, which will increase demand to live locally. So I think you really need to do your research around not just the property because the solicitor can come to the paperwork, the surveyor can give you all the information about what the construction and what the makeup of that property is. But ultimately, the one thing you can't change is the property is where the property is. You can't pick it up and move it later down the line when you realise you've bought the wrong house in the wrong place. Mm -hmm. It will always be there. So you need to really understand that ecosystem around your property and what the pros and cons are. And if I was out looking at properties, I'd be looking at creating a pros and cons list for three very similar properties, probably in value, three very similar properties that would have the rental values very similar and just doing pros and cons. And if there's one out in in the sticks with no amenities and comparatively the rental income and cost of a property that's got post office, shops, bus, you can walk to a train station, buy the second one because that will always be more desirable. There will always be there will always be that safeguard of people will always want to live there. They will want to live in the first one, but if anything changes, the second one is your safe bet. The restriction on the person with the other one, if they don't have transport or whatnot, it just doesn't work for them. So you're limited on your audience there. Invest where someone else, council, local authority, developer is uh, is investing themselves is a uh, is a common part on this podcast that we talk about a lot to see that equity growth as a not necessarily a guarantee but a logical guarantee in, in the way the market sits at the moment luke really appreciate you coming on the podcast thank you very much so ian another podcast another one done what a great podcast so much we probably could have gone for another hour i reckon it, yeah. <laughs> it went it's on got a to be one of the longest ones i think that one uh, yeah lots lots covered wasn't there lots covered lots of detail covered and um great topics after we knew it's going to be a different conversation to some of the other ones that we've had before and that's what i loved about this particular episode is we're many we've managed to go into different corners of the property game with luke and get an educated answer answer i should say on all of them so great episode hopefully people took a lot from that lots of notes i would imagine people have listened to that episode and they've got more questions off the back of listening to it that they've made notes of. So if people want to get in contact with Luke um, or us after that, then please do reach out and be happy to uh, answer those questions for them. But your takeaway? Yeah, for, for me, it was interesting to see his views on what happens next in the property market. Every single day I see videos, I see people posting on social media saying, I'm waiting for the market to crash. Yeah. The truth is... Well, obviously we can't say the truth, but we don't have a crystal ball, but the evidence does not show it crashing. With the shortage of properties that we have, 
with the increased demand we have, there's no other way than it going up. Mm. I don't see that happening. And just hearing it from his mouth reassures me of that. Um, I don't know if you have the same views on that, but I agree with everything he said there. It's, it's so true with what's happening. Yeah, we see it at the first hand, don't we? Because we see exactly what's going on in the coalface in terms of the levels of demand that are out there at the moment for a property, especially in the home counties. And if you look at anything across Right Move or Zoopla reporting, you'll see that demand is high in 95% of the UK at the moment. And it's not showing the signs of letting up. Yes, we've got cost of living. Yes, we've got inflation. Yes, the stamp duty holiday's gone. But we're back to normal in, in aversion. Kind of. Yeah, in aversion. And, and the demand is just still through the roof, even though interest rates on average have gone up about a percent, which means they've pretty much doubled in the last 12 months or, or maybe even nine months. So it's still bonkers as a market. Um, I love listening to Luke's story. I thought it was really interesting, the amount of different angles and, and where he's gone in his property journey. Um, I also love listening to him about the conversations he'd had with um, the Asian investors and sort of the asset finance that he was looking after previously and, and how they got aggressive within COVID. And the areas they got aggressive as well were actually the risky areas, probably the most risky areas to go into. So it just makes you think about property investing or generally investing in life sometimes the obvious place to go and invest or the most fruitful place is not the most obvious but there is obviously people with big bank accounts that do look at that and normally get it right and and the average person out there often does the opposite of what they do and i guess that's why they sit above average in their bank account so great episode definitely i would say that they work smart not hard um it's probably the best way of putting it and clearly he's shown that um, but as you said, I'm sure there's plenty of questions that people have for either yourself, myself, Mike or him. Um, so if you have any questions, best way to get hold of us is send a DM on the socials, which is at the landlord page. We'll get back to every single person. And also, if you feel that there's a, a host or sorry, a guest that you feel that may benefit the show for our listeners um, like yourself, then please reach out. We'd love to hear from you. But until next time, see you next Friday. And flicking through YouTube and through Spotify, I don't think there's a podcast or a video channel on YouTube that landlords can land on where they're not being sold something. I mean, it'd be the first time any estate agent's ever asked that question, but why not ask that question to a wider audience? They just have the knowledge there, but they don't seem to share it. You can do different episodes based around someone that wants an exit plan or someone that's just starting their portfolio. The rules change every year. Yeah. But why not just open the floor out and just say, well, is property even the best investment out there? And tax advice is a big thing, especially with everything that's changed, capital yeah. gains tax and obviously your stamp duty costs that you need to pay and whatnot. People don't realise what they need to prepare for. We build a podcast and we build a YouTube channel, somewhere that landlords can go and they feel they're not being sold to, but they're just getting quality advice.